Greek and Early Christian Novels, Part 2, by T. R. Glover. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. One consequence in literature of this general failure to be true to reality is the decline of history. True, we have in Eusebius, Ammianus, and Socrates three admirable historians, judicious, thoughtful, and truthful, but perhaps the bad name of Rufinus is a better index of the feeling of the day. It is very interesting to see how Socrates, from the first, emphatically disclaims rhetoric. He will give no thought to pomp of diction. First part, one and three, and when, by and by, he finds out that Rufinus, instead of consulting evidence, has been guessing, katastochazes there. He goes back over his work and remodels his own first two books to bring them into harmony with truth. Second part, one and three. Jerome himself accuses Rufinus of lying, of saying whatever comes into his mouth. Quid quid in bucasem venerit, a much better phrase. This is exactly the mark of rhetorical history, carelessness of everything but effect. The anecdote triumphs over everything but the speech, for every great man in history becomes a declaimer. The great defect of the rhetoricians, says Chasang, is to make their heroes in their own image. Alexander the Great, Apollonius of Tyana, Pythagoras are drawn as the rhetorician thinks they should have been, very like himself. He inserts in their story anything that interests himself, or that he thinks telling. I have already alluded to Porphyry's life of his teacher Plotinus, which shows history degenerating into romance. The effects of this style of writing are far-reaching. That Christian writers should be influenced by their environment is not surprising. They are harshly judged sometimes in our days for faults they shared with heathen contemporaries, rather unjustly so, for the really remarkable thing is that they are on the whole so free comparatively from them, and after all they are known and read because they were so free. Everybody knows Tertullian's faults, and as they are not those of today, they attract attention. How many critics of Tertullian could give as good an account of Philostratus or Porphyry or even Apuleius? There is no comparison between the men. Tertullian has many faults of style which they have, but he is clean, he is serious, and he is truthful. There is no one so terribly in earnest as he, with his seriousness born of penitence, but he flashes with assonance, antithesis, and epigram to match the most flippant. But the writers with whom we are dealing are smaller men and more obscure. Yet they too, while reflecting their age, are marked by the seriousness of the new view of life. In the first place, the Christian novelists, if I may so call them, while they often show the same faults as the heathen, do not show them in such excess. Their pictures of life and society are still very apt to be conventional, and if not conventional, at least unreal. Their characters are often wooden, and their history is sadly to seek. But whether the reader count this for better or for worse, they have less of the rhetorical style, they are less self-conscious in their writing, less clever. They have fewer arts and do not attempt to fly so high. Secondly, they are more alive and more serious. They are conscious of new motives in life, of new inspiration, and it is these that as a rule have led them to write, and their writing reflects the quickened spirit. In almost every kind of literature they challenged the heathen world. They have no new story of Troy, but they have a new tale of truth, and Juvencus wrote about 330 his four books of evangelic history, a marvellous feat. 
He made a harmony of the Gospels in Latin hexameters, in a plain, honest style, wonderfully faithful to the original, yet not without some poetic quality, though the meter is a little monotonous. Apollinaris tried the same in Greek, but his work did not survive. But our theme is fiction. The romance of the hero is represented by a long list of false gospels, some more or less dependent on the canonical four, but all tending to embellish or decorate them with fanciful incidents and other rhetorical devices. Acts of the Apostles are perhaps even more numerous, and these permit the interweaving of the romance of travel. Not many of them, but some have elements of the love tale. I do not know the date of the wondrous and marvellous history of the glorious acts of Philip the Apostle and Evangelist. It is only extant in Syriac, and was probably first written in that tongue. It certainly deserves its name. Philip, in answer to his sea captain's despair, prays for a wind that shall take them from Caesarea to Carthage in a day, and it comes, and incidentally hangs head downward from the mast, a blaspheming Jewish passenger. The ship was flying and going over the water like an eagle in the air, and the Jew, hanging by his great toes, was very uncomfortable. Philip inquires, now how dost thou view the matter? And the Jew's confession is so extensive that we feel either he or the historian has read the apologists on the Old Testament. Philip rejoiced at his conversion, and the penitent is released. Arrived at Carthage, Philip proceeds to find Satan, an Indian man, i.e. a black man, on a throne, with a belt of two snakes and a garland of vipers, with eyes like coals of fire, and belching flame from his mouth. He is overthrown by the sign of the cross, and Philip sets forth to preach. The Acts of Thomas is a very different work, having a clear purpose in its insistence on virginity and asceticism. A Gnostic book, also written by a Syrian, and therefore perhaps outside our scope, though it is found in a Greek translation. We shall give more attention to an original composition in Greek on Greek models, and of undisputed orthodoxy, the Acts of Xanthope and Polyxena. Another group of Christian romances, while connected with the tale of the hero, is perhaps rather to be classed with the utopias. The romance of hermit life begins perhaps with Antony and goes on with Paul and others, and there is this distinction between it and an Alexander the Great, that it exhibits an ideal life which all men may follow. We may all be Antonys, and the writer indicates that we should if we knew what is good for us, but Alexander lies beyond us. Lastly, we may set down the apocalypses with their pictures of the other world in the same class with Ur the Armenian, though, as I have indicated, their descent from him is very doubtful. Here, too, we often find a special purpose besides the general moral drift which marks such works. Now that we have made our survey of pagan and Christian fiction, it will be well to concentrate our attention on one or two examples of each class. The pagans will be represented by Achilles Tatius because he is like most of the pagan novelists, and Longus because he is unlike them. The Acts of Xanthope and Polyxena is a clear imitation of these by a Christian hand. The latter part of the Gospel of Nicodemus will illustrate romance attaching itself to the Gospel. The Apocalypse of Paul will show us a link in a great series of visions of hell, and give us a hint of a great movement which was not merely pictured in the life of Antony, but immensely promoted by it. The story of Clitophon and Leucope is told by Achilles Tatius in eight books. The date of its composition is uncertain. Rhode puts it after the beginning of the third century and before the middle of the fourth. 
The tale is told by the hero to the author, whom he meets in front of the picture of Europa and the bull, part of the description of which I have quoted. Clitophon, a young man of Tyre, it was designed by his father, should marry his half-sister, but he did not want to, and instead fell in love with his cousin, Leucope from Byzantium. He wins her love by sighs and other pretty manoeuvres, and a little chapter is devoted to their drinking from each other's cups, turn about by way of signalling kisses. Ere long, of course, for lovers must have adventures, they fly together and take a ship at Beratus for Alexandria. They meet a storm, a rhetorician's storm, and are shipwrecked, reaching safety at Pelusium, where they see some works of art carefully described in a temple. They are caught by robbers and separated. Clitophon's rescue comes first, and he has to look on helplessly while Leucope is made a human sacrifice, but he finds very soon it was a mere pantomime done with a collapsible dagger from a theatre. Then Charmides, the commander of the soldiers who rescued them, falls in love with Leucope, who resists him, but is rendered dramatically insane by a potion given by another lover. After some fighting between soldiers and natives, Clitophon gets her safely away, cured by another charm. She is kidnapped again, and from the deck of his ship in pursuit, Clitophon sees her head cut off. This time it is not a theatrical dagger, and a head is cut off, though of course not Leucope's, as it turns out afterwards. He now returns to Alexandria, and a rich widow falls in love with him and carries him back to Ephesus. There he finds Leucope a slave, and terrible complications follow. The widow's husband reappears, for he had not after all been drowned, and he strongly disapproves of Clitophon. Melite, the lady no longer a widow, finds out about Leucope, who is assailed first by a fellow slave and then by Melite's husband, but is saved from both. Prison and process, escapes and entanglements now jostle one another in quick succession for hero and heroine, but all characters are cleared by the ordeal of a miraculous fountain which always drowns the perjurer. Melite distinctly gets the better of heaven by an ingeniously worded oath. Clitophon and Leucope go to Byzantium and are married, and the half-sister at Tyre is also married to a man who early in the story had kidnapped her under the impression that she was Leucope. What more? Descriptions of nature, as we have seen, and discussions of psychology, excursions into mythology, geography, and antiquarianism, an account of the Nile, a picture of Alexandria, speeches, letters, and all sorts of things embellish the tale, but hardly save it from being tiresome. Achilles does not trouble heaven very much, but trusts to fortune, giving him all the confusion he wants. Yet at one time he has recourse to a dream to stop Clitophon's marriage. And after all, when once the half-sister was kidnapped, everything was clear, and there need have been no elopement. But in that case there would have been no tale. Pseudus says this man Achilles became a Christian and was made a bishop, but critics find in this a mere imitation of the similar tale about Heliodorus. Socrates says, people said that Heliodorus, bishop of Trica, was the author of the romance Ethiopica. It was a mere story which he quoted. Heliodorus says of himself that he was a Phoenician of Emesa, a descendant of the sun, and Rode rather associates him with the revival of Neopythagoreanism and the Syrian dynasty in the early years of the 3rd century. Neither he nor Achilles is to be credited with a bishopric. The romance of Longus depends for its charm on quiet country life with no foreign adventures. True, there are one or two raids upon the peaceful scene, 
but heaven interposes some miracles and all is restored to be as it was. I do not know that the story would be affected, except perhaps in length by the complete omission of these episodes. It is a tale of two children, a boy and a girl, exposed as infants by their parents and miraculously preserved. This does not seem a very probable beginning for a tale, but it is more probable than it seems. One of the things that distinguished Christians from pagans was, according to the apologists, that they did not expose their children. Tertullian tells a horrible story of one actual case among the heathens. The reason in Longus's case for using this artifice was to give a conclusion of wealth and splendour to his tale, and to introduce a momentary doubt as to whether Daphnis, recognised as a rich man's son, would still care to marry Chloe. Dio Chrysostom, in his Euboicus, draws a picture of the happy life and contented poverty of two families of hunters in the wild lands of Euboi, but for a romance one wants a more triumphant ending than for a political or social parable. The chief interest of Longus's novel lies in the idealisation of the love of a boy and girl growing up together among goats and sheep in the happy worship of Pan and the nymphs. There are points that strike a modern reader oddly, as for instance Chloe's failure to remark the existence of such a thing as an echo till she was about fourteen. They both are too surprisingly innocent to be convincing, and here it is that Longus shows himself unmistakably of the family of Priapus by an exaggerated and impossible naivete. Longus is at last disgusting, where Saint-Pierre is beautiful. But if we take episodes out of the story and concentrate attention on them, as some of its admirers have done, we get a more happy impression. For like the other Greek novels, this one breaks up easily into a series of more or less independent scenes, which could be rearranged, added to, or lessened without material import. These better scenes, then, taken by themselves, are pleasing, but they are not simple, and though nearer nature than anything else in Greek fiction, it is nature drawn by a rhetorician, a man of more taste than his class, but still a rhetorician. Chloe is first to fall in love, as is Virginia in the French novel. She sees Daphnis bathing. Quote, what it was she suffered, she knew not, being but a young maid, bred in the country, and one that had never heard tell of the name of love. Sickness seized her soul, and she was not mistress of her eyes, and much she talked of Daphnis. Her meat she neglected, by night she waked, her flock she despised. Now she would laugh, now she would weep, then she would sleep, then she would start up. Her face was pale, and again it flamed with a blush, nor would a cow, stung by a gadfly, behave as Chloe did. Daphnis and a shepherd boy called Dorco dispute as to their comparative charms, and Chloe awards the prize, a kiss, to Daphnis, who falls in love with her and does not understand it. Here is his soliloquy. Quote, what can it be that Chloe's kiss does to me, lips softer than roses and a mouth sweeter than honeycombs, but the kiss than the sting of a bee more painful? Oft have I kissed kids, oft have I kissed puppies, newly born, and the calf Dorco gave me. But this kiss is strange, my breath leaps, my heart pants, my soul melts, and yet I would kiss again. O evil victory, O strange disease, whose very name I know not. Then did Chloe taste of drugs ere she kissed me. How then did she not die? How do the nightingales sing, and my pipe is silent? How do the kids leap, and I still sit? How do the flowers bloom, and I weave no garlands? But the violets and the hyacinth flower, and Daphnis withers. Then will Dorco seem more comely than I. End quote. 
All this is artificial in the highest degree, though thoroughly rhetorical in every way. It is literary rather than spontaneous. The writer has read Theocritus and thinks of him, but his work is not Theocritian, for he has been infected with the arts of the school. Here is the series of little sentences, word by word, exactly balancing, antithesis, apostrophe, and abundance of echoes and false conceits. Let us try something better. Winter came on, and there was no more pasture in the open, but all the country folk were kept about their homes and farm buildings, so Daphnis and Chloe could not meet. Chloe was being taught to dress wool and use the spindle, but Daphnis had no such work to do and devised a plan to see her. Quote, before the farmhouse of Dryas, her foster-father, and just under it were two tall myrtles and ivy upon them. The myrtles were near each other, the ivy between them, so that reaching its tendrils to both like a vine, it made an appearance of a cave with the alternating leaves, and clusters of ivy berries, many and big as grapes, hung from the branches. Round about them was a great swarm of winter birds, for food without failed, many a blackbird, many a thrush, and wood pigeons, and starlings, and all other birds that eat ivy berries. On pretense of catching these birds, Daphnis set forth after filling his wallet with honey-cakes, and taking bird-lime and snares as a pledge of his purpose. The distance was not much more than ten stadies, but the snow not yet melted gave him much trouble. But to love, after all, everything is an open way, fire and water and Scythian snow. He comes then at a run to the farm, and shaking the snow from his legs, he set his snares and the bird-lime he smeared on many twigs, and then sat down thinking of the birds and of Chloe. But birds came in large numbers, and were caught in plenty, so that he had no end of trouble in gathering them, killing them, and plucking their feathers. But from the farm no one came out, not man, not woman, not domestic fowl, but all abode lying by the fire within, so that Daphnis was in sore straits, thinking they were not lucky birds that gave him the omen to come. A pun, uc ep asius ornisi, and he tried to gather courage to enter the doors with some excuse, and sought in himself what would be most plausible. I came to get fire, but were there not neighbours but a stayed away? I came to ask loaves, but the wallet is full of food. I need wine, but it was yesterday or the day before you gathered the vintage. A wolf was chasing me, but where are the wolf's footprints? I came to catch birds. Why then, when you have caught them, do you not go away? I wish to see Chloe, but who confesses this to the father and mother of a maiden? Every approach is vain, none of these but is suspicious. Better then be silent. I shall see Chloe in the spring, since it is not fated, so it seems I should see her in the winter. With some such thought in his mind, he gathered up what he had caught and started to go, and, as if love pitied him, this befell. Dryas and his household were sitting at table, meat had been divided, loaves were set before them, wine was being mixed. One of the sheep-dogs, watching for an unguarded moment, snatched a piece of meat and fled through the doors. In vexation, Dryas, for it was his portion, caught up a stick and ran after him, tracking him like another dog, and as he pursued and came to the ivy, he sees Daphnis with his booty on his shoulders and ready to depart. Meat and dog, at once he forgot, and with a great shout, Welcome, my boy, he began to embrace and kiss him, and took him by the hand and led him in. When they saw each other, they all but fell to the earth, but making an effort to stand upright, they greeted and kissed each other, and this was, as it were, a prop that they should not fall. 
So Daphnis, after giving up hope, had a kiss and had Chloe, and sat near the fire and put from his shoulders on to the table his burden of wood pigeons and blackbirds, and told how he grew weary of staying at home and went out to catch them, and how he took some of them with snares and some with birdlime in their greed for the myrtles and the ivy. And they praised his energy and bade him eat of what the dog had left them. And they bade Chloe pour wine to drink, and she in gladness gave to the others and to Daphnis after the others, for she pretended to be angry because he came and was about to go without seeing her. However, before giving it to him, she took a sip and then gave to him and he, though thirsty, drank slowly to have a longer pleasure by delay. End quote. The author's failure is a moral one. At the end comes the general recognition, and no one seems to attach much blame to the parents who cast out their children because they had too many or were ill off for money. The general ignoring of evil of a gross kind shows how the rhetorician had fallen into that stage where evil results in insensibility. Let us now turn to Xanthope and Polyxena, a book I incline to attribute to the 4th century, though the first scholar to print it, Dr. M. R. James, says it may belong to the 3rd. The story of the victory, by the cross's aid, seems to suggest Constantine. It is the insigni lignum of triumph, the careful adhesion to the straight and true faith, and the various theological expressions of it, Though they do not refer to Arianism and its distinctive doctrines, yet suggest the Great Council. Some of the phrases describing other things also point to the later date. The tale, as Dr. James shows, borrows hints from a number of others, but it hangs together very well, if we once grant that each of the heroines has her own story. We do not hear of Polyxena till chapter 22, and then we hear little more of Xanthope. There is about both parts a bright air, a spirit of cheerfulness and faith. The author cannot forget the goodness of God, his mercy and his eagerness for the redemption of the sinful, his providence and care for those who serve him. This last quite replaces the fortune of the heathen novelists. At every stage the right man appears, not by accident, but by divine instruction and guidance. The writer is like his heroine's anthropy. I wish to be silent, but I am compelled to speak, for one within me is fire and sweetness to me. And now for a short sketch of the book. Probus is an official in Spain, a friend of Nero, though his name suggests the 4th century, an honourable man very fond of his wife Xanthope, though apt to be irritated by her abstraction and her sometimes rather hysterical piety. His wife, an anima naturalita cristiana, hears of Paul's preaching in Rome and longs for more knowledge of the gospel. She is much disturbed to her husband's alarm, but after uttering some prayers, a little too nearly Christian for a heathen, she sees and hears Paul. The apostle is their guest and is heard joyfully by his hostess, who has already the son of righteousness in her heart. The host, after a while, is worried by the crowds who come to hear Paul, and, indignant at my house being made an inn, turns him out and locks up his wife. She bribes the porter, visits Paul, and is baptized, and on her return home has a vision of Christ preceded by a cross on the east wall of the room. But when she saw his face, she hid her own, crying, Hide thyself, O master, from my bodily eyes, and enlighten my understanding. He vanishes, and overcome by a speechless gratitude, she faints the results of her fasting and watching and the vision. Meanwhile Probus, has had a dream which turns him toward the faith, and he and his wife visit Paul, Probus being greatly impressed by her humility, 
which was rather a new virtue in her. He is baptized, and after a curious incident in which Xanthope, in a rage, stabs a supposed dancer, really a devil, in the face, their story gives place to that of her sister Polyxena. The story of Polyxena much more closely resembles those of the Greek novels. Probus's house is entered by a man by means of magical arts, and Polyxena is kidnapped. The captor puts her on shipboard to sail to Babylonia. On the way they pass a ship taking St. Peter to Rome to overthrow Simon Magus, a fragment of an old story, and Peter, by divine warning, is bidden pray for a soul in distress on the ship from the west, i.e. Polyxena. They land in Greece and meet Philip the Evangelist, who rescues Polyxena and entrusts her to a disciple. The kidnapper gets an army of 8,000 men from a friend of his, a Count Gomez, to recapture her. She flies, and her late host's thirty servants raise the sign of the cross, slay five thousand of the Count's army, and return hymning God. Polyxena takes refuge in a lioness's den, a hollow tree in a dense forest. The lioness, however, is friendly and guides her to a high road, where St. Andrew finds her. She asks for baptism, and at the water they meet a Jewish girl, Rebecca, and both maidens are at once baptized, for the lioness reappears, and in a human voice bids instruct them in the true faith. Andrew leaves them, for it was not revealed to him that he should go with them. A man driving asses, who has sold his property and makes a mission of feeding the poor, of course a Christian, undertakes to bring the two girls to the seashore and aid them to escape to Spain, but they are carried off by a magistrate. The ass-driver tells Philip, who trusts that heaven will preserve them. Once more, Rebecca is seized and laments, like Xenophon's heroine, Again am I a captive. The magistrate's son is a Christian, converted by Paul and Thecla at Antioch, and he befriends Polyxena. In a rage, his father exposes him and her to a lioness, who proves to be the old friend. This causes a great sensation, and the magistrate is converted. Onesimus, the teller of the tale, appears and preaches, and everyone there is converted. Polyxena and Rebecca are sent safely back to Spain, where they are welcomed warmly by Xanthope, Probus, and Paul. The kidnapper reappears also, but he too is converted, so all ends happily. It will be recognized that there is much here very like the Greek novel. Kidnappings, surprising deliverances, magic, and the wonderful lioness. The last suggests Androcles, but is probably a combination of the beasts that will not destroy Thecla, in the Acts of Paul and Thecla, and the speaking ass descended from Balaam's, in the Acts of Thomas. There is, however, a clear difference between this Christian work and the heathen models, for the heroine's virginity is the expression of a definite faith and service, and also there is nothing in the tale that could be called foul, as there is in every, or nearly every, Greek novel. In all probability, the book was designed to supplant such stories. It was not the first Christian novel to borrow a framework from the enemy. The Clementine homilies lie outside our present scope, but a word or two may be given them. They form one of the most interesting books of early Christianity, for they are, in reality, an early attack on Paulinism. And Bauer and his school have tried to find in them a true presentation of Christianity properly so called. Peter is their hero, and Clement is, one may say, his squire, and together they hunt down Simon Magus and other heathen antagonists. To give the story a flavour of life, Clement is represented as in search of his family, who are all scattered by a series of accidents recalling the Greek novel, 
and who are all found again by the help of Peter and Providence. From Xanthope and Polyxena we pass to a work of more importance, a work of genius. It is now embedded in the so-called Gospel of Nicodemus, a 13th century title for a combination of two much older books, The Acts of Pilate and The Descent into Hell. The former is a rather tiresome expansion of the gospel narrative of the crucifixion, resulting in the whitewashing of Pilate to some extent, and the latter is attached to it by a very simple device. Two of the dead who were raised from their graves in the commotion following the crucifixion are called on to give an account of what happened. Quote, they said to the chief priests, give us paper and ink and pen. They brought them, and sitting down, one of them wrote as follows, end quote. Here is given the second work, which I will quote in part, taking the Greek text of Thilo. This story is dated somewhere about or a little after the year 400, Mori, followed by Renan, placing it between 405 and 420. Tischendorf puts it a good deal earlier. Trasang compares its opening to Virgil's. The quibus imperium est animarum umbraque silentes et chaos et flegeton loca nocte tacentia late, sit mihi faus audita loqui, sit numine vestro bandere res alta terra et caligine mersas. Aeneid 6. 264. Quote, Lord Jesus Christ, the resurrection and life of the world, give us grace that we may tell of thy resurrection and the marvels thou didst work in Hades. We then were in Hades with all that have slept from the beginning, and in the hour of midnight into that darkness dawned, as it were, the light of the sun and shone, and we were all enlightened and saw one another. End quote. Adam and Isaiah recognize the light as prophesied, and then comes John, quote, an ascetic from the desert, end quote, once more to be forerunner of Christ. Adam and Seth contribute their testimony, and, quote, the patriarchs and the prophets rejoiced greatly, end quote. Quote, and while they thus rejoiced, came Satan, heir of darkness, and saith to Hades, all devouring and insatiate, hear my words. A certain man of the race of the Jews, called Jesus, naming himself Son of God, he being in fact a man, through my aid the Jews crucified him. And now that he is dead, be thou ready, that we may hold him fast. For I know that he is a man, and I heard him say, My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. He did me much evil in the world above, when he lived among men, for wherever he found my servants he drove them out, and as many men as I made maimed, blind, lame, leprous, or any such thing, by a word alone he healed them. And when I had made many ready to be buried, these too he brought to life by a word. Then Hades saith, And is he so mighty as to do all this by a word? And how canst thou resist him, if he is such? End quote. Hades doubts the wisdom of Satan's bringing him. Quote, and this I say to thee, by the darkness we have, that if thou bring him here, none of the dead will be left me. As thus Satan and Hades talked one with the other, there was a great voice as thunder that said, Open your gates, ye rulers, and be ye lifted up, ye everlasting gates, and the king of glory shall come in. And when Hades heard, he saith to Satan, Go forth if thou canst, and withstand him. So Satan went out. 
Then saith Hades to his demons, Make fast well and strongly the gates of brass and the bars of iron, and hold my barriers, and watch, standing all of you erect, for if he enter here, woe shall overtake us. When they heard this, their forefathers all began to mock him. All devouring and insatiate Hades, open that the king of glory may come in. And when Hades heard the voice the second time, as if he knew not, he answered and said, Who is this king of glory? The angels of the Lord said, A Lord strong and mighty, a Lord mighty in war. And immediately, at this word, the gates of brass were broken, and the iron bars were shattered, and all the bounden dead were loosed from their bonds, and we with them. And the king of glory came in, as it were a man, and all the dark places of Hades were enlightened. End quote. Hades recognizes in the conqueror the Jesus who is nailed to the cross, and the arch-satrap Satan is bound in iron and delivered to Hades to be kept till the second coming, not without the taunts of Hades himself. Quote, the king of glory stretched forth his right hand and laid hold of our forefather Adam and raised him up. Then he turned, and to the rest he said, Come ye with me, all ye who have been slain by the tree of wood this man touched. For behold, again by the wood of the cross I raise you all up. And with this he put them forth. And our forefather Adam was filled with sweetness, and he said, I give thanks unto thy majesty, O Lord, that thou hast brought me up from the lowest Hades. So did all the prophets and the saints, and said, We give thee thanks, O Christ, the Saviour of the universe, that thou hast brought up our life from destruction. While thus they spake, the Saviour blessed Adam on the brow with the sign of the cross, and this he did to the patriarchs and prophets and martyrs and forefathers, and he took them and leapt forth from Hades. And as he went, the holy fathers followed and sang, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Alleluia! This is the glory of all the saints. And as he entered into paradise, holding our forefather Adam by the hand, he gave him and all the righteous to the archangel Michael. As they entered in at the door of paradise, there met them two old men, to whom the holy father said, Who are ye who saw not death, nor descended into Hades, but in your bodies and souls inhabit paradise? And one of them answered and said, I am Enoch, who pleased God and was translated by him, and this is Elijah the Tishbite, and we shall live till the end of the world, and then shall we be sent of God to resist Antichrist, and be slain by him, and after three days rise and be caught up to the clouds to meet the Lord. And as thus they spake, there came another, a mean man, bearing upon his shoulders a cross, to whom the Holy Father said, Who art thou that hast the look of a thief? and what the cross thou bearest on thy shoulders. He answered, I was, as you see, a thief and a robber in the world, and therefore for this the Jews delivered me to the death of the cross with our Lord Jesus Christ. As he hung on the cross, I saw the signs that befell, and I cried to him and said, Lord, when thou art king, forget me not. And immediately he said to me, Verily, verily, today I say unto thee, With me shalt thou be in paradise. So, bearing my cross, I came to paradise, and found the archangel Michael, and said to him, Our Lord Jesus, the crucified, sent me hither, bring me in at the gate of Eden. And when the fiery sword saw the sign of the cross, it opened to me, and I came in. Then said the archangel to me, Wait a little, for there cometh Adam, the forefather of the race, with the just, that they too may enter in. And when I saw you, I came to meet you. When they heard this, the saints cried with a loud voice, Great is our Lord, and great is his might. All this we two brothers saw and heard. End quote. 
This story is not the creation of the 4th century, and perhaps even this rendering of it is older, but that it was in the minds of men is shown by the hymns of Ephraim the Syrian, and Prudentius, and of Synesius, if by nothing else. There is a vigour about this piece, and an imagination which rise to higher levels than the Greek world dared now to attempt. And yet there is still to be felt in it that quiet happiness which Augustine recognised as the mark of the church. There is no exaggeration, no rhetoric, but the work is as simple as it is sublime. We pass now to a book intrinsically of less interest, but yet one which Dr. James says has left traces of its influence in nearly all the medieval apocalypses and even in Dante's Divina Commedia. Its own account of itself is this, quote, A certain man of repute dwelt in Tarsus in the house of the Holy Paul, in the consulship of the pious king Theodosius and Gratian the Clarissimus, in the Latin he is Synegius. And to him an angel of the Lord appeared, saying, Break down the foundation of this house, and take up what thou shalt find. And he thought it was a dream, but when the angel continued till a third vision, the man of repute was compelled to break down the foundation, and he dug and found a marble chest containing this apocalypse, etc. End quote. The historian Sosamon, 7, 19 and 34, can add to this, quote, The Apocalypse of Paul the Apostle, as now circulated, though none of the ancients ever saw it, a great many monks praise. Some maintain this book was found in the present reign, for they say that, by divine revelation in Tarsus of Sicilia, at the house of Paul a marble chest was found under the earth, and the book was in it. When I asked about it, a Sicilian priest of the church in Tarsus said it was a lie, he was an old man, too, as his white hair showed, and he said he knew nothing of the kind occurred among them, and he would be astonished if it were not the invention of heretics. So much about that. End quote. Two things should be noted. A new discovery, especially if led to by some miracle, is a fairly safe index of a forgery. Sosamon's reference to the monks fits in well with the tone of the book. We may therefore conclude it was written in the reign of the younger Theodosius, and one of its objects was to help monarchism. The feigned Paul then tells how sun, moon, and sea appeal for leave to destroy sinful man, but God's patience protects the race for which he is to be praised, and especially at sunset. For then the angels come before God to report the works of mankind, and of them all those are most joyful and most bright, who say, quote, We come from those who have renounced the world and the things of the world for thy holy namesake, who spend their lives in deserts and mountains and caves and dens of the earth, sleeping on the ground and fasting. Bid us be with them. End quote. Some come with sorrow quote, from those who are called by thy name and serve sinful matter. End quote. By every man's deathbed stand angels, good and bad. And to the sinner the bad say, quote, Unhappy soul, look at thy flesh. Know whence thou comest, for thou must return to thy flesh on the day of resurrection to receive the reward of thy sins. End quote. An appalling picture of the soul's trial follows, when, after being confronted with the souls it has wronged, it is cast into outer darkness. Paul is now taken to the city of the just, meeting Enoch and other patriarchs and prophets, and seeing rivers of honey, milk, oil, and wine for the just, who in this world abjured the use of them and humbled themselves for God's sake. David too is seen, his face shining as the sun, while he holds in his hand psaltery and harp, and sweetly sings Alleluia till his voice fills the city. And what means Alleluia? In Hebrew it is Thebel Marematha, 
in the Latin version, Tekelkat Marith Macha, let us glorify him together. Paul now visits hell and sees the various torments of various sinners. There seems to be no descending scale of misery, but the tortures exist side by side. Let us only notice those who talked in church, and, for the sake of longest, women who destroyed their children, and lastly the priest, quote, who ate and drank and then served God, end quote, the bishop who judged unjustly and pitied neither widow nor orphan, and the deacon, quote, who ate and drank and then ministered to God, end quote. Paul weeps and then, in response to his entreaty and Gabriel's, respite on Sundays is granted to the wicked in hell. Now Paul visits paradise and receives the blessing of the Virgin and the lament of Moses for the people of Israel. He meets the three great prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and Noah, who was a model of asceticism while he was building the ark. Then, with the appearance of Elijah and Enoch, the apocalypse abruptly ends in the middle of Elijah's address to Paul. This apocalypse is modelled in part on the much earlier apocalypse of Peter, with which it shows some close coincidences. It no doubt impressed the minds of some of its readers, for this kind of revelation seems always to be more or less popular, succeeding better in its descriptions of hell than of heaven, and thereby emphasising some obvious morals. Dr. James says, indeed, that we may owe some even of the present-day ideas of heaven and hell to the apocalypse of Peter, and in this case Paul has perhaps contributed too. But the book is in any case far inferior to the one we treated before it, and to the one that follows. So much about that. It has been demonstrated in recent years that the life of Antony is a work of fiction. We need not here go over Weingarten's arguments, but when once his result is accepted, the book becomes much more intelligible. Of all books of the 4th century, it had the most immediate and widespread influence, which, though outgrown by now, lasted on to the Renaissance. It was fiction, as Uncle Tom's Cabin was fiction, and just as this American book, though perhaps not a work of the highest art, and certainly denounced in no measured terms by people of the slaveholding states as a fabric of lies, yet swept America and England, and wakened the public conscience, contributed to the freedom of the Negro. So the life of Antony came at the right moment, and roused the hearts of good men and women to a sense of the possibilities of a life surrendered to God, and dependent on his grace. There was, in the fourth century, a great feeling of dissatisfaction with the world, and even with the church. Life was difficult, and the churches were not of the greatest possible aid. Then monarchism began to suggest itself in the minds of Christians as a way of escape from an evil world and of approach to God. The movement was immensely helped by this Life of Antony, a book which displays the triumphs which a simple unlettered monk, trusting in the grace of God, wins over evil in every form. It is hardly a work of art, it is in some places a little tedious, it is often very impossible and sometimes even absurd. Yet it succeeded and deserved to succeed. It was constructed with some thought, if not of the finest. More than one Puritan movement had been unfortunately wrecked because its leaders quarrelled with the authorities of the church. Our author is careful to make Anthony most respectful to bishop and presbyter. Chapter 67 yielding precedence to every cleric. Again, he wrote in the thick of the fight with Arianism, and between this heresy and monarchism there was a mutual hatred. So Antony is exhibited to us as going to Alexandria, and there, though an uneducated Copt who could not speak Greek, frustrating an Arian with tremendous effect. 
and more, the battle was not yet over, and Antony is represented as already dead, yet before he died, he prophesied the troubles which the church is even now enduring, and from which he foresaw her triumphant emergence. The book is Puritan. Antony was a mere layman, and for long years he neither went to church nor saw priest, nor took sacrament, and yet lived in close contact with heaven. His ambition was, like that of Francis of Assisi, to follow the Saviour and live a life of evangelic poverty. Matthew 19.21 Indeed, to understand him, one must understand Francis, the real Francis, as Monsieur Saboteur draws him. He had no need of books. To him, as to Francis, it was given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but unto others in parables. Like nearly everyone else, our author believed in devils, but not as they did. For one great part of Antony's work is to prove finally that the devil is the most futile of beings. The troops of hell may play all their pranks as they please, but at the sign of the cross they vanish. Quote, for the Lord worked with him, he who wore flesh for us, and gave to the body the victory over the devil, so that, of those who strive indeed, everyone may say, Yet not I, but the grace of God that is in me. End quote. Chapter 5 Once the devils flogged him, but he prayed. Quote, After his prayer he said with a loud voice, Here am I, Antony, I fly not from your blows, for though add ye more also, nothing shall separate me from the love of Christ. And then he sang, Though an host should encamp against me, my heart will not fear. End quote. So the enemy for the time left him. Thus the effect of the book was distinctly to lessen and not to increase the attention paid to devils and demons. Antony is made to deliver a long homily, chapters 16 to 43, about them, explaining what they seem to do on the lines followed long ago by Apuleius and Tertullian, and emphasizing their insignificance. Of course he wrought miracles and was generally benevolent and helpful. Not even the notice of the emperor elated him. In fact, every virtue the writer could think of he gave him. To one point I should like to call attention. The author gives Antony that peculiar and happy expression we associate today with a strong and active belief in the doctrine of grace. Quote, From the joy of his soul, his face too was bright. He was never disturbed, for his soul was at peace. He was never gloomy, for his mind rejoiced. End quote. Chapter 67 It should not be hard to understand the influence of this book. It was widely read and imitated. Jerome's Life of Paul is a copy of it, a wretched, rhetorical, soulless imitation of a great book. Very soon it was actually attributed to Athanasius, who had the credit of it till Weingarten reclaimed it for its anonymous author. Of its effect on thoughtful people we have a striking illustration in St. Augustine. He tells us he had reached a more or less satisfactory solution of his doubts, and now, quote, desired to be not more certain about thee, but more stable in thee, end quote. Confessions 8.1.1. And while he hesitated to commit himself to the Christian life as he now saw it should be, he heard the story of Antony for the first time. He was profoundly moved by the contrast between this ignorant man's achievement of holiness and the low level with which he himself, for all his learning, was content. Then, resolving to try a sorus biblica, suggested by the episode of Antony hearing the text, If thou wilt be perfect, go and sell all that thou hast, and give to the poor, and come follow me. He opened at the text in Romans, which struck home. The great point to notice here is that the essence of the book is that doctrine which Augustine, by his own experience, was being led to make the centre of his faith and teaching, the doctrine of grace. 
Here ends our study of the novels. In their own way, they reflect their age, the over-elaboration and sterility of style, the failure of civic ideals, the growing individualism, and something of the new life still struggling for expression in the church. End of Greek and Early Christian Novels, Part 2, by T. R. Glover.